Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and we are welcoming back today Todd Rose, who's the co-founder and president of Populous, which is a think tank committed to ensuring that all people have the opportunity to pursue fulfilling lives in a thriving society. You may remember Todd because he uh, wrote all about collective illusions, and he and his team have been releasing reports all about what is the difference between you know what people believe and what they think everybody else believes. And we talked about a previous report with Todd. We've talked about some of his reports without him. He's doing some of the most important work out there. And prior to Populist, he was a faculty member at Harvard University, where he founded the Laboratory for Science of Individuality, and he directed the Mind, Brain, and Education program. He is the best-selling author of Collective Illusions, Dark Horse, and The End of Average, and he lives in Massachusetts, which, based on the quality of football there, means he probably has a lot of time, which is probably why he's even on this podcast on a Monday morning. Todd, welcome to the pod. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And you're right. It's, it's a tough couple of years. <laughs> yeah, I'm a Bills fan. Things are looking up right now. Although by the time this airs, we will have played Miami. So we'll get my joy out of the way now. Yeah, that 70 point game, by the way, that was unreal. But. Yeah, we're scared. You know, they're billing in as best defense versus best offense, but I think they're better at offense than we're at defense. But we'll find out next week. But that's not why you're here. You released a new report. Uh, this is all about the American dream and all about like you know what people believe, like what they want out of life, uh, and then what they you know what they believe other people think. Before we even get to any of that, just like let's do a brief cliff notes. People can go back to our prior episode for the detailed explanation. But just your methodology, because this is what sets you apart. This is not just a poll. Explain to us a little bit about what you do to even try to get at what people's real preferences are. Yeah, that's a great point. We use methods that are called private opinion methodologies, and we didn't invent them, um, but they've been around for a while. They just haven't been used consistently in the area of public opinion. And as most people know, a lot of people in, in America don't feel comfortable telling the truth about what they think on a whole range of issues. So we've got a number of methodologies, depending on the severity of that problem, some of it is point blank when people are lying. We can get around that. And we've got some stuff coming next year on that. But in this case, this is about your view of a successful life and your American dream. There's a little bit of social desirability effect, right? People, it's like, I, I think everybody else thinks fame's important. So I'll say fame, but, or where I shouldn't say fame or whatever. So the trick is with all these methodologies is that you create plausible deniability and anonymity. So it allows people to feel comfortable saying what they think. The last thing I'll say on this one, anytime you're studying something where it involves time or money, the truth is you can't have everything. So the real question isn't just to ask someone point blank, like, for example, do you want to have a family? Well, people say, okay, sure. It's like, how much do you want to have a family, right? Like, <laughs> what would you trade off for that? And so this methodology forces real world complex trade-offs. And I can then create a rank order for you individually. And in this case, out of 61 trade-off attributes, like really, what are your priorities? And we can do that for every individual. And then we can look at patterns in that. Well, I mean, I feel like we should unleash you on the New York City Council because I feel like they haven't, they don't know anything about trade-offs, but <laughs> uh, that's a whole different podcast. But okay, so you, you looked at 61 attributes and found that more than half had a gap of 20 points or more between what Americans prioritize and what they think other Americans prioritize. I feel like I'm fairly familiar with your prior studies. Am I wrong that this is the 
most pronounced gap that we've seen in any of these? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. This just blew my mind. It just how spectacularly wrong we are about each other as Americans when it comes to something as deeply personal as the kind of life you want to live and how you conceptualize the American dream. And to your point, like when you have over half of them having 20 rank order differences between reality and perception, and it even got worse, right? Like, because about 40% of those had 30 point rank differences. So you're talking about nearly half the whole entire attribute list. So like, I think it's number one, you think it's 31. You think we all think it's 31. It's like, it's that kind of crazy. And you you might think like, well, who cares, right? So we're wrong. But being wrong about each other in systematic ways like this, as we've talked about before, it it leads us to a place where if I want to be with my group, I start making life choices that are contrary to what I would have chose otherwise. And actually, I start getting a little bit resentful, frankly. And when I think lots of people care in this case, for example, care about fame and fortune and this highly sort of zero-sum view of success, I'm starting to see everyone else as competitors. When in my, most Americans care a lot about things that are very generative and collaborative and cooperative. So you can imagine how you start to feel if everybody around you, you believe would stab you in the back for a dollar. What I think was fascinating is the generational divides too, which we'll get to, which is, or or a lack of divides. Like, I think like one of the things you found is, you know, maybe we could start there is that Gen Z, for example, uh, the perception of Gen Z, which is something that we spend a lot of time talking about. You know, my co-host Ricky is a, is a Gen Z writer. The perception of Gen Z and who they really are appear at odds here. Uh, what was the surpri- most surprising thing you found about like our young people right now? I think the most surprising thing, and I think it's quite hopeful, was the commonality on one of these things, which was in everybody's top 10, like literally every demographic, in every way you cut the data, people want to be actively engaged in their community. That kind of blew my mind because my colleague, Bob Putnam, you know, studied this, the, the decline of civil society and, and the sense of maybe we just don't care anymore. No, look, it, it's ninth out of 61 trade-off priorities for my view of success and the American dream is being actively engaged in my community. And it was equally pronounced for our youngest voters. And I thought the, the other thing about that that I think is really profound, and I think it has something important to say as we lead toward the 250th and we think about who we are as Americans, not only is being involved in your community a top priority for everybody, we also measured achievement on these things. Like, how you doing, right? <laughs> if you care about this, do you think you're accomplishing it? In the top 10, the the active involvement in community was the lowest achieved of all top 10 attributes. That doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, especially for the youngest people who, you know, you saw this data, Derek Thompson tweeted about this yesterday, like, you know, just one more piece of data that Gen Z in particular are desocialized, I think is how he put it. Like they're spending less time. And it's not like people like me, I'm 40. It's not like people like me and you are killing it on it either. Like, and and as you said, this is this is the kind of thing that actually requires other people. So it's not competitive. It's actually communal. Exactly. And I think that only a third of Americans right now are engaged in their communities at the level that they want to be. And just to put that in perspective, more people reported being debt-free than engaged in their community at the level they want. And so I look at this and I think, 
you pair that with what the number one, this was the second thing that, that really blew my mind. I, I did not expect this. The number one trade-off priority overall for a uh, view of success and the American dream was doing work that had a positive impact on other people. That's number one. So you start thinking about wanting to be involved in your community, wanting to do work that has an impact, right? Stuff like that. And you think, here's a great opportunity. You know what I mean? Like maybe our conversation about who we are as Americans doesn't have to start with politics. Doesn't start, guys, maybe it's about getting back to the de Tocqueville kind of like community, like engagement, involvement, stuff like that. And so I saw it as hopeful, right? That we still want to be in proximity to each other. We want to help. Um, we want to engage. So that again, that, that, that was both surprising and I, I, it was also like uplifting for me. Yeah, let's let's put a pin in that because I do want to come back to that at the end about like what do we do about this because it does feel like there's some kind of invisible force stopping people from doing what they want to do. Uh, and I, I was left with that thought as I read this. But okay, let's go through. So uh, let's kind of start with the most pronounced preferences of people. So when you look at this across the board, across demographics, you talked about you know meaningful, you know doing work that's meaningful and makes a positive impact. What are some of the other uh, preferences that rose to the top across demographics. Well, so not surprisingly, and I and I would have called BS on any um, survey that didn't find this. Uh, finances do matter to people, right? They they really do. But one of the things I thought was important, um, and and I don't think we we focus enough on, is it's not about being rich. It's about having financial security to be able to live the life you want to live. So you see in the top ten a lot of things like being on track for a secure retirement at number two. Financial independence, not, not independence like I can do whatever I want, but literally like earning my own money, right? So I'm not dependent on, say, even a spouse, that kind of thing, um, which I think is nice. Um, the idea of being debt-free is a top 10 priority. Owning a home, that's not surprising. That's always been part of people's American dream. And the idea of like rarely, if ever, worrying about money. So there's a lot of that, not surprisingly, given where we're at, um, in society, people are like, I don't want to have to worry about money. But when you look at all of the um, wealth-related variables, especially like, for example, being rich is actually ranked 45th out of 61. But not surprisingly, given that this audience knows about collective illusions, <laughs> it's, it's we actually think it's the number one priority for most Americans, <laughs> like being rich. And so, you know, the the thing, just, just to do a quick rev on this and, and the practical consequences of it, if you realize it's about financial security versus, for example, one of the things that drives me crazy about the way we talk about the American dream right now is we talk about it as economic mobility. And, and these are all well-meaning people. I mean, these are people who I respect a lot, who uh, care about the American dream. But I think we make a mistake because I think that economic mobility, it is true is a barrier, right? The absence of economic mobility is certainly a barrier to the American dream. But I believe we make a mistake when we confuse eliminating the barrier with the dream itself. Because when you see, when you ask people point blank as Americans how they think about the American dream, the majority chooses what James Russell Adams coined, meant it when he coined it in the Great Depression, right? Which is, it really is about the ability to achieve the things that matter to you in life, right? To believe you live in a society where I could define, pursue, and achieve my view of success. But when we ask them, what do they think most Americans would say? They think it's all economic. So here we go. And if we imagine the policy decisions you make, if you believe it's about economic mobility, 
about moving up, making more than your parents. Um, you, you actually inadvertently make policies that get people out of their communities sometimes, right? Uh, maybe pursuing a level of education they didn't want or actually need, taking on debt that then actually does matter for them. In, in contrast, and I don't, I don't mean this as any value, whether the policy was good or bad, but we had the child tax credit during the pandemic, right? Cash transfer to people with kids to help make life a little easier. Well, given that being a parent is the fourth ranked attribute on this list, you know, you start to think, well, that starts to make sense, right? We can provide some financial security and perhaps enable more people to be parents, right? So anyway, I, I think it's important that we get this right, that people, they're not looking for a handout. They're not looking to be rich all the time, but they are looking for that security that gives them peace of mind and the ability to pursue the things that really matter. So it's like they don't want to be rich, but they want to be financially independent, which, you know, to be financially independent probably requires you, especially depending on where you live. Like I live in New York, you have to be rich to be financially independent here. Maybe if you live in, you know, Chattanooga, Tennessee or something, it's a little different. But I do think the way that people look at it, and I think one thing that you found on the financial side of things is stuff is probably less important, like luxury items, things like that. But people do tend to think others care more about those things. I wonder, as I was looking at that one in particular, you know, you've done so, you know such good work to eliminate the bias on people's preferences about themselves. Have you ever thought about whether there's a bias reflected in how people view other people and report that? Like almost like, like, do you really believe other people care about luxury items or is that something you say because that's a story you tell yourself about who you are as a person. Does that make any sense? It does. It does. So we have, when we're building these instruments, we have a series of tests to, to try to weed out whether it's the story they're telling themselves. So, I, you know, to your point, I could say, I actually really love luxury items, but I know it's not the right thing to say. Right. So I will say I don't care, but I'll say most people care. Right, right, right. So we actually have a, a sequence that gets at, at this stuff. And then when we look at a potential where it might be that case, there's a whole nother uh, methodology called like a truth serum methodology where you can really get at these things. Um, but so I think it's a really good point. One of the things that's interesting when it comes to success versus highly charged like political issues, people don't mind usually when uh, you give them a little plausible deniability. They don't mind telling you because because... For example, look, I think it's also important in trade-offs. We all like some luxury items. Let's just be clear. That's not the, it, it's that I will tr trade off a whole bunch. I'll trade this off for a whole bunch of other things. Right. Will I take a Louis Vuitton bag? Sure. Right. I'm not going to say no, but am I going to choose that over doing work that's meaningful? No. And so that's the key here, which is, this is a little easier. I like I said, when we get to stuff like, let's talk about highly charged political issues. Yes, people will hide behind their perception of everybody else. Yeah, it's there is this weird symmetry, like in, we kind of, in many ways, use other people as our marker, like, especially if you're a contrarian, which so many people in the political space are. Like I was listening to this great interview by Ryan Holiday, who was talking about how like all these people that he kind of came up with, who he's now like on different sides politically with, he was like, you know, what's interesting is so many people came up contrarian and they owe their success to their contrarianism. And now it's almost like a problem for them because then when like something that has consensus for a reason emerges, they are falling on their con contrarianism. But okay, there's actually something. So you talked about 
you know, people wanting kids or like being a parent is something that they rank high. I think it was ranked fourth, right? But they didn't rank marriage high, which I find fascinating. <laughs> right. Which was, what was it, like 19? And yeah, look, so it's not like it's a, they, they don't care at all. But I do think it's interesting that they have a strong priority difference to have kids and, you know, maybe a spouse, if that's it. And I thought, well, maybe it's um, just that, you know, in our early data, like we build multiple versions of this just as we test, as we go um, and calibrate language and stuff. I thought maybe it's just the sort of legal aspect. You know, maybe marriage just has so much baggage and it's sort of like, you know what, I don't need a piece of paper to say who I love. But then we saw like, being in a committed relationship ranked even lower. <laughs> so, so there's just something, again, it doesn't mean you won't take it. I just thought it was interesting. I would have thought, if you just think about our history, that there was like, oh, I want to get married and then I'd like to have kids, right? Like there's feels like there was a sequence there. That's definitely not the case here. Yeah, I, I, this I think a whole book could be written about that. I'm sure there are many. But, uh, and uh, yeah, actually, as I looked at the Atlantic this morning, there's some something out there that the conversation renewed about marriage. You know, I think it was the very previously uncontroversial point that marriage is good. Uh, and I'm unmarried, so it's like, I, you know, I'm particularly on one side of this debate, I guess. But I feel like so many people in my generation feel like, and I guess our generation, I think we're roughly the same age, we come of age in this sort of age of the decline of institutions, right? Like for me, it was the Catholic Church growing up. Uh, but marriage is part of it, right? Marriage is an institution to a lot of people, whereas I don't think they view parenting as an institution. That's right. Uh, which is, I think, probably good for society. And you're starting to see a lot of these alternative modes of parenting. Like I have a lot of friends who are either women who decide to have kids on their own, women who decide to like approach somebody who they respect, but they don't want to date to be like, let's have kids. Like these are all things that are happening that may seem jarring to a 65-year-old, but to somebody like me who went through p parents who divorced each other twice, uh, not to mention how many other times my dad got divorced to other people, where the first wedding I attended was my parents getting remarried, <laughs> you could probably imagine why some people in this generation are like, ah, you know what? Like, I like kids, but I don't necessarily believe in this institution. Yeah, and I think it's really important just at sort of wonky level, right? Institutions are nothing more than rules of cooperation that allow us to achieve something we couldn't achieve on our own. That's the point of institutions, right? Um, whether that's public education or marriage. You can argue that there's marriage has enough baggage as an institution, and usually one side of, of the gender thing, like right. historically, sure. that it's never really good in a democracy when institutions force compliance from people rather than respond to the evolving priorities that people have. They exist to facilitate. Now, we can have a whole different conversation about why that hasn't been true for about 100 years, um, but it, this is a perfect example where we should be deeply attuned to the lives that people want to live and make sure our institutions support that rather than hem them in. Yeah, and it's interesting that social pressure, especially depending on where you live, I mean, it's as high as anything when it comes to marriage. You know, like I, I live, I grew up in New York, and every time I see a relative, you know, I have to go, I have to go back to uh, Staten Island. Have to don't those Staten Islanders don't get mad at that. I will be going back to Staten Island uh, this in a couple of days to see a bunch of friends and family. Um, and the first thing they will ask me is, when am I getting married? Every single one of them, like the social pressure. Never mind if you grew up in Abbeville, Alabama, or something like. 
like I can't even think of anything with more pressure other than making money, you know? That's right. And and it's a perfect example where, you know, there may have been a time, for example, on the other thing, like making money, where the sort of pursuit of fame and wealth really was core to who we are. But I think people have shifted focus to something far more substantive, and I think that's good. And there's just this lag, right? We don't, we know, we know we privately have changed our values, but how do I know you have? right? All I see is your behavior. I think marriage is in that space right now where who knows where it goes, but I think that we have to be deeply sensitive to the the changing private priorities or else we end up with yet another institution that we feel works against us. Yeah. And this makes me wonder, like, have you seen, uh, and maybe this gets to the character status distinction, like a difference between how people articulate or the gaps between things that are verifiable to other people easily versus things that are a little harder for people around you to discern. So a good example is marriage is a binary. You're either married or not. People will know you're married. Your parents will know you're married. Now, how much money you have is a little different. Like, you know, yes, people can kind of tell how you're doing, but like debts, like, you know, this is if you look at anything like gambling addictions or whatever, like one of the reasons why gambling addiction is such a problem is actually you could hide it in ways that you can't hide other things, right? So the amount of money you have or whether, you know, like certain, you know, markers of happiness or whatever, like people can fake it to the people around them. Do you see like anything in the data that shows up there where like things that are like super verifiable show up a certain way versus things that aren't? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So like, especially with under collective illusions, they are far more pronounced in the case of things that are very hard to empirically verify, right? So I know that I care about, say, doing good work. How do I know anybody, unless I see everybody in their community, (laughs) this is kind of the problem. Yeah, all I can see is your behavior. I don't know your thoughts, right? And there is this um, constant sort of bias humans have where we think that, for example, when it comes to social pressure, I know I'm not necessarily telling the truth because I'm worried about this. I don't know that that's true for you. I just don't, right? How would I know? So I have to basically take what you're saying at face value that like, this must be what you think, right? And so that leads to, you know, unless I can verify it, right, I tend to misread. It's very easy, especially with even a little social pressure in society. It's easy to misread in a big way. The flip side of that, which is, or I guess not the flip side, but like to amplify it is part of why you get illusions around the superficial is because they're easier to market. So if I'm an advertiser, the last thing in the world I want is for people to think of character as important for their views. Right. (laughs) Louis Vuitton, the brand of character, right? Like it doesn't, it's it's like, I want you to want luxury items. I want you to want wealth and status and fame. And I don't mean that as bad. Like, look, that's what I would do if I were running an ad agency because I can show you that. And if let's just imagine these advertisers are under the same collective illusions which is in this case, as you already alluded to, I was pretty shocked. Because again, to your point about even projecting into other people, like let's say I really do want to be rich, but I know I'm not supposed to say that, so I'll say everybody else wants it. The cool thing about this methodology is it's never one question being asked. It's always like each time you take the survey out of the 61 attributes, we would say, here's two people. Which one of these people is closer to your view of a successful person, right? And it takes five attributes, five or six attributes, from the pool randomly and makes it person A and then randomly grabs more attributes for person B. So being rich will be 
combined with other attributes over. So you just do that over and over and over again. So you get trade-offs across all the attributes. But the reason I say that is you might be able to hang on and game one of those attributes, right? But you can't do it across all of them. So when I start to see a cluster, right? So for example, all the status attributes plummeting to the very bottom of our private values, that's that's real, right? Because you can't game it the way it's designed. So I thought it was kind of mind-blowing that in the aggregate, you have Americans, every single character attribute, every single one ranked higher than every single status attribute by like 30 points. And it also makes you think like about the sense of control, right? Like status is amorphous for many reasons, but one of the reasons why it's a foolish uh, thing to chase is that you can't really control your status. Like John Wooden, I think said, you know, he cares more about character than reputation because reputation is what other people think about you and your character is who you truly are. And all you could really control is who you are. Yeah, of course, some people are really good at inflating their status or maintaining their status, uh, to put it a more positive way. So, you know, and just to state the obvious, what you found is that people care more about character than status in their own lives. Like, yeah, talk a little bit about what you learned there, because there's just so many different wrinkles there. We talked a little bit about like luxury items, et cetera, but what else did you find? Think about things like in the top 10 was having a purpose in life, right? I mean, there's an aspect of meaning here that I think is really important. And I think the pandemic sort of ushered in, quite frankly, this shift to meaning and purpose. But this having a purpose in life, like having strong ethical values is the top 10. The way we're going to show up in the world, how we're going to treat one another, you know, this is um, being charitable, being authentic, which I think is that craving against sort of cancel culture, kind of like, I just want to be who I am, right? Trustworthy, like being kind, right? All of these things are all in like the top 25. And then you go to these status things like knowing a lot of influential people, like who do you know, right? Do you have, let's see, a high status job, even being considered physically attractive, which I thought, I, I guess that's status, but that is how it's conceptualized. <laughs> you know, like I didn't know there was something wrong with wanting to be uh, viewed as good looking, but whatever, that's okay. I thought it was fascinating, even graduating from an elite college or university or being famous, having a large social media following, owning a lot of luxury items. Those are all in the very bottom of trade-off attributes for people in private. Now, what's interesting though, is as soon as you flip the question to what do you think most people would say, that inverts entirely and every single status attribute ranks higher than every single character attribute. This is what I mean when I say, we are just like spectacularly wrong about each other as Americans. To say it's depressing would be, I think, like obvious, it's stating the obvious, but what, and, and as part of that, you know, just, you know, given we love to talk about education, degrees, and this is something you found in a lot of different ways across your surveys, is that like just generally higher education, the view of higher education is is falls into this. I don't think we just talk about it too much because we've established it before, but people care much less about going to college, higher education generally than they have before. I don't know if you want to say anything about that, but then I want to get to a little bit about what the implications of all of this are. I'll say one thing about it, because you're right. Look, this has been a trend we've been tracking with private opinion for six years, and it's just this steady decline in the desire for higher education. In this case, a college degree ranked 54th out of 61. It used to be a marker of the American dream, right? And now, it. but the thing I'll say that I thought was kind of surprising and interesting 
was that getting a certificate in a skilled trade, like a plumber, right? Like HVAC, stuff, you know, good paying jobs, right? This, that actually help people, right? That ranked 15th in private. Here's what I thought was really funny. So even people with advanced degrees, like myself, now rank getting a certification in like skilled trade as a better marker of success than a college diploma. <laughs> yeah. Well, even think about the conversations you have, though. Like, you go out to dinner with a bunch of friends, right? And, you know, nobody talks about their degrees. And it's not even just because of being polite, but it's just like we all know. Like, it's just like whatever. Like, whereas if somebody was like, oh, you know, I learned to weld this past summer, people would be like, whoa, like, that's really exciting. And actually, in a weird way, is higher status. Like, I know that the status doesn't care, but it's like, you know, I, I spend every year learning a new thing. And sometimes it's a sport, sometimes it's a trade, like writing or whatever. Nobody asked me where I went to law school. Nobody cares about where I went to law school or undergrad. But the people are always asking me, hey, like, how's that tennis coming on? How's the surfing? Where's the novel? You know, people, and, th and that's actually in a weird way, a, a, a gateway to status, which I don't care that much about. But if I did, in a weird way, it's a better route than, hey, you went to Yale Law School. Well, if you think about it, so in this research, the attribute that you are always learning um, new things ranks 21 points higher than getting a college diploma. So you're right. Like, I just think something's changing. And I think there are real implications here, right? Some of that college stuff is undoubtedly just how expensive it is, right? But now you're starting to see research suggesting that the economic payoff just may not be there anymore in the same way. Right. And I, I, you know, it's funny because I, I just, as, just as much as I'm glad that we're not, we can't keep forcing everyone into college and taking on incredible debt for work that isn't meaningful and doesn't pay off financially for them. We also can't overreact, right? Like college is really good for certain things. And if what we should be focused on is like an opportunity pluralism, right? Let's not define for you your path. Let's make sure that you have all these options available to you and we don't put our thumb on the scale. You know, we, we actively degraded and devalued the trades when we wanted to amp up the number of people going to college. You didn't have to do that, right? Let's, let's keep our focus on ensuring every American has a shot at their American dream, which means being able to achieve on the things that matter to them, rather than playing these games of like, if you don't go to college, you're not a successful person, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and how do we reinvent like the whole world of education and skilled trade? Because, right, what is college if you think about it right? And a lot of people don't think about it right, but it, it is a blast if you think about it right. Like if you told me I could spend four years right now with amazing athletic facilities, awesome libraries, meeting new friends from across the country, tons of adults who just care about you and obsess about you, I'd be like, oh, yes, yeah, sign me up if I could financially make it work. And the problem is it becomes harder to make work. Kids don't enter it with the right mindset because of the rat race that they get into it. They almost do it at the wrong time. It's almost like you should be taking people who are 40 and putting them through that experience. And so the question is, like, can we as a society make room for this? Because, like, you know, always learning shows up, right? You have people who have a uh, a more open, flexible mind to all these institutions and polls that society offers. I think they're they're more likely to think about radical reinvention. They're living longer. Like, can we come up with ways? And and by the way, they care about community, right? Which is college can be a, one of the most important communities you take part in, right? So what, how do we solve that? I don't have the answer, but I do think it's an opportunity. I do too. And I think there's there's two things to it. If, if I could wave a magic wand, and I, I'm, we're seeing this already happen, which is 
you're 100% right about the sort of magic of college if you get it right. And you can also add to that pressure. I, I don't want to overhype AI. I think we're, we're it, it's a, obviously it's a thing and it's, it's cause probably like the sky's not falling or whatever, but like the, what it will do is shorten the cycles of creative destruction. That that's for sure. Right. Which means whatever already your, your, the value proposition of any skill or bit of knowledge you acquire right now is already a lot shorter than it was, you know, 20 years ago. It's just going to keep getting shorter, which means the need for reinvention is greater and the life cycle for that is shorter. So you could imagine, for example, that universities respond by creating passports, which is you pay and you can take a certain amount of things over the span of, say, 10 years, right? You come in, maybe it's for a class, maybe it's for a year. You know, you come in and out like this. I think they're going to have to respond that way. But one of the things I think is the most interesting thing, and I never in a million years, five years ago, would have said this was going to be happening, is the absolute transformation of K-12 that's going on across the country, where people are now putting pressure on that to respond to exactly what we're talking about. And it's not a new phenomenon. Like Charles Elliott, one of the early presidents of Harvard, actually said the point of high school should be to explore everything society has to offer on a pass-fail basis and to have no grades and just be like, your job is to figure out what you love. And a close second, if you don't get that, is what do you hate? Our technologies are offering an incredible opportunity to accelerate quick academic mastery, right? The stuff that you just got to know, and then leaving a space to enable our children to discover their passions and purpose. So when you combine those two things, like the sort of radical transformation of K-12 and these new models of higher ed that are being tried out, you know, we can get somewhere. But again, the problem is right now, privately, we all want this, but we don't believe that everybody wants it. So so under those illusions, nothing's going to happen, right? Because we think, well, everybody else likes this. Why would I be a squeaky wheel, right? So it's really critical that we have conversations like this to help reveal what we really believe as Americans. And you also like found that like although like there are certain trends, you, you say that success is personal. So although we want community, uh, and we, you know we want to connect in, in more ways, and, and we want to build shared values, these sort of the differences between people are pretty significant. Yeah, that, and I think this is important. Look, aggregate data matters, right? You could, it does. It is important to see patterns, and even one click down in terms of demographic cuts is important, right? To see trends. But in a final analysis, we're incredibly unique as individuals in our trade-off priorities, right? So meaning just that like, you know, you'd imagine, well, maybe everybody has the same kind of, let's just say even like the top, you know, two or three, it's like not even close. It's like the way we looked at it was how many people had the same top two attributes as the aggregate stuff? And it's like tiny percentage. I think it was, if I remember right, like for my own data, if I remember right, I have to look at about 5%, just 5%, right? So so we got to be careful, right? That we don't overread into aggregate data. So the thing is, is why does that matter? We also found, we looked at achievement on these things, right? Like not just what do you want, but how you're doing on it. We We developed achievement scores. And then we actually looked at how those correlate with things like life satisfaction. Do you like your life? And then also their belief in the American dream. And what you find is uh, higher levels of achievement on the things that matter to you, not the stuff that matters to everybody else, not chasing those illusions. 
strongly correlates with higher life satisfaction. Like, like it's, it's really, really important that you know what it is you want in your life and that you live in a society that gives you a fair shot to achieve that, even if nobody else cares about those things. Yeah, I think that this is like a counterfactual. This is going to sound like a weird sort of like detour, but I think a lot of people in and around the Meghan Markle, Harry situation were talking amongst their friends and asking, would you want to be a part of the royal family, right? And I think of this as like an interesting thought experiment for people because they are as wealthy, the royal family, as anybody, right? So wealth is control. Fame is control. You have fame, right? But what don't you have, right? You don't have a lot of the things that in this report uh, people do care about. You really can't work on stuff that you really care about unless it's just giving money away, but you're not actually uniquely helpful. You could put any stooge in that situation and they'd be like, yeah, you know, let's solve poverty. I'll throw some money at it, right? Like you're almost actively prevented from doing anything meaningful. Harry's a good example of somebody who, you know, joined the military. Uh, I don't remember how he got in the military, but seemed to really take it like that as a point of pride that he was doing something meaningful, right? You could see that perhaps I'm not like a psychologist, but you could imagine that like he has struggled to find connection to some of the things that you see here, right? And you don't have like some of the freedoms that people care about. Um, you're living a life that somebody else has asked you for, but you have all the other stuff that people say other people care about, right? And people are having these conversations. They're almost like identifying amongst themselves the collective illusion in and around that to be like, you know what? If you gave me all that, I'm a teacher in you know Knoxville. I'll take my life over sitting around and shaking hands for the rest of my life. Isn't that funny? We've had these same experiences. And I think that the, the royals have been such a good example of forcing that. Um, even the sort of fictionalized account in The Crown, I remember watching the young queen, you're like, oh no, there's a role you have to play. And you, you give up yourself. And you, like you said, you look in this research and it's like, there's this rising desire for real self-determination. I want to be able to define my own life and I want to have a shot at like achieving things that matter to me. And, and obviously it's not selfish. This is what I really love about it is when left to our own devices, to decide what we privately want most, it's incredibly social. Like we care about other people. And I, so that that warms my heart. But it's like, you can see just to your point, which is past the point of financial security, which does not require, you know, <laughs> all the gold in, in England, right? Like, you know, you, the trade-off is I am losing everything else that would make life meaningful to me. And to circle back to this, and this is just something that I just think we have to get right as Americans, is back to that American dream thing as, as economic mobility. So many people we talk to, you know, they're not ashamed that they're still in their community. They're not ashamed that they don't make more than their parents make, right? Like, like we're missing that, right? When people are like, I love what I do. I love that I'm a teacher. I wake up every day and I make a difference in people's lives. And you know, we're, we're able to get by financially and we're like, right, but did you move up in percentile compared to your parents? And it's such a demeaning and degrading question in my mind. It's like, you're missing the point, right? The substance of the American dream is about self-determination. It's not about how much money you make. Your report makes me think about my father, who is a doctor who came from India. And I'd be interested to see how he'd come out on this because he, when he's, thinking right is live, lives a great life when he's like 
He he went down to Alabama, opened a clinic, had patients that were really loyal to him. And at a certain point, he'd remarried and things appeared to be going well and all that kind of stuff. He was financially independent. Any doctor is financially independent unless they're reckless, right? You could work anywhere, anytime until you're senile, right? Uh, he was mending things with his kids. Uh, but he he could not get this idea of what he thought the American dream was out of his head. So he then moves to, back to New York. He runs for office, gets crushed because he's a Republican in Manhattan. He starts lots of businesses. He buys lots of property. And it's like he couldn't get out of his own way when he was living what I think both he and what other people would consider, if you really thought about it, was a perfectly fulfilling life. And I think a lot of people do this. This is it. This is, look, I, I I think this might be the most important conversation we can be having, or one of, as Americans, as we get closer to the 250, that who we are as a people, because we'd all prefer to be with our group. We don't, we don't want to be. There's a, you know, people have, have their brand as contrarians. That, that sucks too. But like, yeah, <laughs> you know, look, I like to think that I try to be, do my thing. Like, but I'm not going to lie. I would like to do my own thing and I wouldn't mind that people recognize me as successful for the things that I do. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, right? But just recognizing that the, the approbation of our group does matter to us, right? It, it's like survival level, evolutionary, right? I am in good standing with my group is actually probably the most important question you could have asked yourself throughout evolutionary history. So when we think about the choices we're going to make, so I'm 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 making choices because I am fulfilled by it. But if I think everybody else wants this stuff like fame and fortune, it's very hard not to make those kinds of decisions, right? Where you're like, if well, if I go over here and do this, you'll think I'm really successful. And I can convince myself for a while that I actually want that. And I think our research and other people's research shows pretty clearly it's a dead end. And so I just want us to have an accurate understanding of each other as Americans. I'm not looking for good news. I'm not looking for this. It's just, I think we can handle anything except for rampant misunderstanding. <laughs> so if all the listeners were thinking, well, wait a minute. So if people really think the American dream is about me figuring out what matters to me and getting a shot at achieving it, and if we think that success is about self-determination, not just chasing fame and fortune, if we are aware that we the people believe that, then the norms of our culture start to reinforce that, right? And, and what it means to be part of the group is to actually figure out what you care about and achieve. And that becomes the, the synergetic kind of thing where now suddenly I what it means to belong and what it means to be fulfilled become one and the same thing. Yeah. You think about all these like sort of super famous people who seem outwardly successful, like Anthony Bourdain, right? who were buckling under something, right? In some cases, it could be chemical, but in other cases, it could be going down a path that where you make one choice after another, not necessarily for yourself, but for some perceived idea. Like I, I was watching this documentary series by about Louis Capaldi, I think his name is, like the singer. Yeah. I think it was on Netflix. I can't remember where I saw it. But there's this point where he's become famous and he's sitting around a table in LA, but I get these like handlers and agents and all that. And they're like pressuring him and all this. And this guy is like putting on weight, stressing out, like clearly unraveling his, he, uh, he had a, um, some kind of condition where he was, had some kinds of seizures or something and they were getting worse and they're keep pressuring him. They keep asking him for songs 
And he then at some point gives, he like sings this song all about how he feels like he's like basically writing all these songs to his album. He sings this song that's all about how he feels like he's a fake. And I remember him giving this and he's, he's, he plays it for his parents who I think have become unfortunately part of this whole like saga too. Not that his parents have bad intentions, but they've also kind of like, I think adopted this sort of misplaced priorities and they, they listen to it and they go, oh, not your best. And I'm like, you've missed the point. This guy is singing. First of all, I thought it was a great song, but it was like, not your best. The, yeah. Like, meanwhile, it's like a cry for help. But I'm like, Jesus, like the guy's literally physically unraveling in front of you. And boy, first of all, what a, what a great talent, right? But, yes. um, but you and I are probably in some situations where we're fortunate enough to be around people who are objectively successful from society's standpoint, right? Very famous, very wealthy. And I, look, there, you can get it right. You know what I mean? For sure. Wealth, wealth gives you stability and, or security and choices. But if you don't know how to make those choices and you don't have the really, the, the like the, the royals don't really have the ability to make the choices that would be filling, I think it's worse. And so it's like, when you think about like the mental health crisis people are facing now, Look, a return to authenticity, a return to um, supporting people like listen, like you do you, right? You can be a musician. You don't have to convert that into your big payday just because that's what everybody says you need to, right? That doesn't solve all the mental health problems, obviously. They're bigger. But I think we'd be shocked at how far we get if we don't allow these collective illusions around success to corrupt our norms and put the kind of pressure on us as individuals to make choices that are contrary to who we believe we are. Well, that's a great place to end, Todd. Uh, thank you so much for this report. Uh, how can folks find it? Uh, just go to the Populist website? Yep, it's on thepopulist.org. Great. And uh, anything we should keep our eyes out for for the rest of the year or next year? Uh, I'll, I'll tell you, we, we've got some stuff coming. I think next year is going to be our most important year. Election year. Yeah. Two things you'll see coming from us. Uh, one is um, getting under the hood of resentment of why we are deeply resentful as a public and it's not what you think. Uh, and I think it's going to be interesting and we've got to solve for that because resentment breeds, you know, it, it makes room for the demagogues and scapegoating and it's not good. The second is we've been working to quantify social pressure in society and starting to be able to give people an indicator to the point you and I talked about. I don't know that you feel it like I do. How do I know? Well, if we can give a trusted metric that it comes out every year and shows us where it is we're feeling pressure, where we're lying, what we're lying about, and then force us to have conversations about that. So I'm, I'm excited about that stuff coming. Well, thank you, Todd, for being with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.